Well, good morning. Bit of a proud dad moment there. <clears throat> and I know some of you were disappointed. You were probably expecting the other Mike. Uh, I'm Mike Traven. I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity Fellowship Church. I, I am the other Mike, and I'm privileged to pastor alongside uh, Mike Stroh and Diana Calvin. Well, what were you expecting when you showed up here this morning? Expectations. We all have expectations. Expectations of ourselves, expectations of others, expectations of God, expectations of the church. It's the list of things that we build up and tell us We're allowed to tell ourselves this is the way it should be. Expectations, they keep us feeling comfortable and safe. And to be sure, healthy expectations rooted in reality are helpful. But the fact of the matter is, is that expectations don't guarantee us anything. When it comes to interpersonal relationships, especially unhealthy or unrealistic expectations, they're like imaginary friends. They create false possibilities. Now, we may expect something to happen simply because we want it to, or we pin our hopes for significance, belonging, security, or safety on our expectations being fulfilled. But those are unhealthy expectations. More importantly, in our relationship with God, self, others, our expectations can prevent us from being fully present in our circumstances or relationships. They they can derail our capacity or our imagination to honor and engage with the person that is directly in front of us. Unmet expectations can become a trial in our lives. We've just finished a series through the book of Job where we've seen how expectations of who God is, how he rules the universe, how he mets out justice, how those expectations allowed three of the most highly educated men in all the land to misunderstand, to miss who God really is. Now, we can step away from our relationships to measure the expectations that we've brought to them. And and where they don't measure up, we can become dissatisfied and discontent. Or perhaps even worse, we can come to believe and operate in the lie that the only way to bring about what we expect or what we want is to manipulate or to overpower others or to cut them off, to walk away. This is as true for us today as it was for those Jews in first century Jerusalem. It's especially with the expectations that they had with regard to Jesus or their Messiah. In the sixth chapter of John's Gospel, we see the people of Israel who have just witnessed miraculous healings. Jesus has fed the 5,000 and they, the scriptures tell us, are ready 
to take Jesus by force and install him as king. But in verse 15, we read that perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force and to make him king, Jesus withdrew. What expectations have you and I placed on our Savior, our Messiah? And how are they derailing our capacity, our imagination, to honor what or whom is directly in front of us? Well, Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem stands at the beginning of the passion narrative of the Gospels. It recounts the events of Jesus' last week of ministry, culminating in his crucifixion and his resurrection. In one climactic week, Jesus concludes the primary purpose of his earthly mission, the redemption of all of humanity. And yet the circumstances of his entry produce a variety of reactions among the people present in the story, and even among us sitting here today. The gospel here is not whether or not the people in the story see and believe, because Jesus still offers himself as the promised Messiah. God's anointed one, the Christ. The good news, brothers and sisters, is that the one true living God, Father, Son, and Spirit, meets us in reality where we are. The present that we are living in, filled with the fullness of God, is the only refuge that you and I have from the disappointment and the resentment that result from unmet expectations. Would you bow your head with me in prayer? God Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, savior of the world, help us to see you and ourselves in the story this morning, that our hearts and our lives would be transformed by the washing of your word and in the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, many of you, as you sit and listen to a sermon on Sunday, maybe think to yourself, I, you know, how is this organized? How is this structured? When I prepare a sermon, when anyone would prepare a sermon, that's a, a key consideration. Well, I'm just going to tell you straight up, the structure of the sermon this morning is story and application. We're looking at Christ's arrival at Jerusalem and his triumphal entry into the city as the story of Jesus making an official an open declaration of his claims as the Messiah and how this matched up to the expectations of those who witnessed the event. And then we're going to look at some ways that we can step away from our own expectations to experience God more richly in our own lives. This triumphal entry of Jesus, it was a deliberate demonstration on his part. He enters Jerusalem in the manner of a king because he was such a king. Jesus is king of the Jews. He's the heir of David's royal line, and he enters Jerusalem with all of the symbolic and prophetic import that is attached to that truth. Yet this son of David, 
did not make his triumphal entrance as Israel in its flesh expected their Messiah to make his triumphal entrance. Having foretold of his suffering and death three times, Jesus didn't expect the witnesses of this particular event to receive him as Messiah or King. Jesus didn't come riding into Jerusalem to satisfy anybody's expectations. In fact, the Messiah that the first century Jews were expecting was not Jesus of Nazareth. Scholars agree that there was not a uniform and monolithic messianic expectation that was shared by all first century Jews. Because of their cultural and political context, some envisioned an anointed military leader who would drive out Roman rulers and lead the people in a successful purge of Gentiles and sinners, restoring the the tribal purity of the Jewish people, both in terms of bloodline and in their, their spiritual lives. But from what we can observe in the Old Testament, the image of a Messiah refers to different people at different stages in the life of the people of Israel. One image is that of the priest who sacrifices for the sins of Israel. This priest image of the Messiah is prevalent in the first five books of the Old Testament. The other image is that of a righteous king who will rule according to God's will and thus bring justice And peace, this is the image of the Messiah that we see in the historical writings and in the Psalms as we read this morning. And the third image is that of the prophet, anointed with the Holy Spirit. This prophet foretold by Moses himself in Deuteronomy 18, often referred to as the greater Moses. The New Testament scholar and Anglican bishop Tom Wright says this. He says, the shared thread of all of these images was a future hope for a royal and end times deliverer who would liberate Israel, cleanse or rebuild the temple, and establish a renewed Jewish kingdom, thereby bringing justice to the world. In essence, this shared thread points to a fourth figure an end-of-time savior, probably the prevalent image that you and I think of when we hear this word, Messiah. Well, as the story unfolds, it's this end-of-time savior, the one who both embodies but yet radically upends all the other messianic images. It is he who makes his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Well, as we turn to our scripture passage this morning, we see that in the verses that precede our our passage, that Jesus has arrived in Bethany. He's celebrated the Sabbath with a party. He's joined by Lazarus, whom he has recently raised from the dead, and many others who have come to dine and marvel at the man who had been in the grave four days and had been raised back to life by this Jesus. Such a miracle had never been witnessed before in all of Israel. And because of this raising of Lazarus from the dead, large crowds had gathered 
in Bethany. Jews who wanted to see both Jesus and Lazarus, as we read in John chapter 12. Well, as we look here in our passage, we see that Jesus and his disciples, they set out from Bethany toward Jerusalem. And it tells us that as they arrive in the vicinity of Bethpage, which is adjacent to Bethany, that Jesus stops and he sends two of his disciples, possibly Peter and John, into the village in front of them with instructions to find by the side of the road tied up a donkey and her colt, her foal. And this, he says, they were to bring to him without question. Well, Matthew then tells us in verses 4 and 5 that that this took place to fulfill this prophecy of Zechariah that was read for us this morning, which foretold of a humble and righteous king, a humble and righteous messianic king who would arrive into the city of Zion, Jerusalem, riding on the colt of a donkey. Well, why the colt? Of a donkey. I'm not a donkey expert. Many times I have acted like, but I'm not an expert on donkeys. But the literature tells me that the donkey of the ancient Near East is different than perhaps what you and I might envision here in our North American culture and the animals that we might be exposed to that were brought here by Europeans. That in their donkey was a much livelier and swift animal. In the Bible, we see it as the beast of burden and the plower of fields used by rich and poor alike. It was also a staple of royal ceremony, and it was the symbol of Jewish royalty and peace. In Jewish culture, respected rabbis rode donkeys. That Jesus does not ride a war horse, but the donkey of Zechariah 9.9 indicates a posture of meekness. His chosen beast shows him to be a king, but albeit one that hasn't come to conquer, at least not in the military fashion that many of the time expected. In the eastern iconographic tradition of portraying scenes of our faith. Christ is depicted as riding his donkey side saddle. This traditional posture of a woman, not a warrior. This man riding a donkey into Jerusalem, he's not looking for war. Jesus is careful to avoid any demonstration of force. He enters Jerusalem as the Prince of Peace sitting upon the foal of a donkey and in defiance of the expectation that Israel's Messiah would be a conquering leader. Well, mounted now on the foal of the donkey, as we pick up at verse 6 through 9, Jesus and his disciples and, and those who had accompanied them from Bethany proceed toward Jerusalem. And meanwhile, they're... Jerusalem is filled to the brim with multitudes of people who've made a pilgrimage for the feast of Passover. There is not an empty hotel room to be found in Jerusalem. It is bustling 
with people. People who live in the city, people who've come to the city, Jews, Gentiles, the curious. And many of them are excited to meet Jesus and Lazarus. Word has spread about this prophet from Nazareth of Galilee who's raised a person from the dead. And so as word has spread that Jesus is coming to Jerusalem, you've got a group of people who leave the city on their way to meet Jesus and his followers who are on the way. Well, who comprise this multitude of people and all their varied expectations? As we've said, there's these pilgrims who've come to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. There's those who've accompanied Jesus from Galilee on his way to Jerusalem. Just those who naturally follow Jesus for a whole variety of reasons. There were those who were the guests at the Sabbath feast that had taken place in Bethany. And the people, again, who'd gone out to see both Jesus and Lazarus. And among those were also a number of Pharisees, the religious leaders, their hearts filled with the bitterest thoughts of jealousy and hatred. We read elsewhere in scripture that when these Pharisees saw this Sabbath feast that occurred in Bethany, they realized not only do they want to kill Jesus, they've got to kill Lazarus too. Well, in verse 8, we see that the crowd is spreading their garments and, and cut fronds and, and boughs from the trees that line the root. And they've spread these on the road as a mark of special honor. And the worshipers, as we did ourselves this morning, waving palm branches in the symbolic welcome that was routinely offered to royal visitors and kings. Verse 9 says, they break out in chorus, Hosanna! Blessed is the one coming in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. This word, Hosanna, it's this, what they're acclaiming is actually a quote from Psalm 118, a Psalm of praise, a Hallel Psalm. These were a group of psalms that were sung by worshipers as they made their way to Jerusalem for the celebration of, of festivals throughout the year. It's a praise of adoration. It literally means, help! Save me, God! Save us now! Hosanna! God, save us! I like how N.T. Wright translates these words in his version from Luke 19 in, in his Kingdom New Testament. He says, Welcome, welcome, welcome with a blessing. Welcome to the King in the name of the Lord. To be sure, some who are singing this shout of praise recognize Jesus as the Messiah. And yet others are simply doing it out of tradition, a cultural norm. They're calling out to God for a Davidic king to come and deliver him, yet not comprehending that Jesus had come to Jerusalem as the promised son of David, the king of the promised kingdom. 
Here is Jesus riding on a donkey, the donkey of Zechariah 9, presenting himself as the Lord, the Messiah of Israel, and receiving honor and praise at the beginning of a week that by the end of it, instead of a praise, a, a, an acclamation of praise, people are shouting, crucify him. How do we get from there to there? To some, he was just a prophet. To others, he was a teacher and a miraculous healer. Healings and exorcisms were not unknown among the Jewish religious leadership. In the same way that healings and exorcisms aren't unknown among us as the people of God, To some, Jesus was the anointed one of God, the Christ. To some, he was just a mystery or a curiosity. To some, he was a complete unknown. Like, what, what is, what on earth is going on here? Why is everybody so worked up about this person? And as we've already pointed out to others, he was a threat. Well, the city, the scriptures tell us, was shaken. It was, the whole city, it tells us, was stirred up in verse 10. The Greek verb that's used here carries this sense of a, of a city shaken by an earthquake. I don't know how many of you have ever experienced a, a, an earthquake, a significant earthquake. Um, maybe you can imagine it, it produces a variety of reactions. Some people, wow, that was really exciting. And others, deathly afraid. Some anxious, apprehensive. This is what's going on in the city. There, there is an uproar. And verse 11 says, the people ask, who is this? Who is this? And those who had been bold before in acclaiming Jesus as the king, now respond with tame words. Not... This is Israel's Messiah King, the one we've been waiting for. But this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of of Galilee. You see, the Jesus that you and I see in the New Testament in some very shocking ways defies all of Old Testament Israel's messianic expectations. Jesus corresponds to the hope for a Davidic king, an anointed one who brings about the long-awaited kingdom, but, but he defies expectation in that his throne is the cross and his crown is of thorns. He corresponds to the hope of an efficacious priest who makes sin offerings, but he defies expectation in that his sacrifice isn't the blood of an animal but rather his own body and his own life blood. He corresponds to the hope for a new prophet like Moses and the prophets of old, but he defies expectation in that he's not only the prophet, but he's united with God the Father and Spirit who inspire the prophecy. You see, the triumphal entry of Christ was made as a deep, and significant 
significant expression of his mission and work. Not in the proud triumph of war conquests, but in the meek rule of peace. And it would not be until after his resurrection that his own disciples would understand the significance of the whole scene that they had witnessed. So how then are we to respond? Well, I offer to you two applications here in the end. The first one is, welcome the king. We must accept Jesus for who he is. Prophet, priest, and king of Israel, and savior of the world. But yet, can we release Jesus from whatever unhealthy and unrealistic expectations we may have of him as our Messiah? Well, how how would we do that? Well, we focus on the hope that he represents. In his letter to the Corinthian church, Paul writes in chapter 15, he says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. This this is the hope that we cling to. This is the gospel. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third dead in accordance with the scriptures. This is the fundamental hope that we cling to. And we release God from all other unhealthy and unrealistic expectations that we may be putting on him. He's finished the work. He's ascended where he's seated at the right hand of God and he will come again. So welcome the king. And the second is trust and follow Jesus. Having gone out to meet him and to welcome him, to proclaim him as your savior, Continue to trust and follow Jesus. We have to keep Christ at the forefront of what it is that we're doing as citizens of the kingdom. It's who we represent. He is the primary person whom we serve. You see, Christianity is is allegiance to the person of Christ. It's not allegiance to a set of cultural mores or values or the ethics that you think others should embrace. As Christians, we're not called to dominate the civic culture, but to infuse it with grace and truth and love. It's not us versus them. It's us for them. Too often in our culture, we've made it us versus them. Jesus wasn't against sinful people. He was for them. He went to the cross for them. And he calls you and I to take up our cross and to follow him. And we would do well to ask ourselves the question often, to what extent are you and I taking up our cross, laying down our expectations, what we perceive to be our rights, our power, the things that keep us feeling comfortable and safe, and laying them down for the sake of another. 
writing to the church in Colossae, Paul says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. You see, the elemental spirits of this world compel us to exercise power over other people. People that don't think exactly the way we think. People that don't look like us. People that don't meet our expectations of what they should be. But yet the Spirit of Christ compels us to display our power through sacrificial service. You see, expectations, friends, they wreck our chances for honoring what's right in front of us. A relationship with God, a relationship with others, a right relationship with self. You see, God meets us where we really are. And he can take us places that are far, far better than you and I could ever expect. Well, after we celebrate the table this morning, you're invited to come forward as directed by the ushers and and lay your palms at the altar, as as Pastor Mike Stroh told us this morning. We get to proclaim Christ as King through this simple act. So welcome, welcome, welcome Christ as King, and may we experience him with the heart and mind of a child and the assurance of our salvation that frees us from the expectations that are holding us back on our spiritual journey. Would you pray with me? Almighty and everlasting God, in your tender love for us, you sent your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, to take upon himself our nature giving us the example of his great humility and and suffering death upon the cross. Mercifully grant that we may welcome him as king and that we may walk in the way of his self-giving love and be present, fully present, to the fullness of your presence. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen.